What a terrible sound that is. All right. Indeed, it is a delight to have opportunity to bring the word to us this morning and to minister to my heart because I need to hear this as much as everyone else. And so let's pray and ask God will help us during our time that we'll have ears to hear. Father in heaven, it is our desire that you would be glorified, that we would make much of you, that people would be drawn into the greatness of who you are, that we would not be so inclined, Lord, to want people to think much of us, which is what we tend to do, and which we want people to think that we are better than we really are. And so, Lord, we come with uh, torn inside. We long to have you glorified. We also long to see our own lives magnifying you and less of a desire to magnify and to promote ourselves. Lord, we need your powerful work in our hearts. And so we pray that you would use your word today and we pray that you would, by your spirit, not only help us to understand it, but Lord, help us to see the implications and the applications of the text to where we live every day that indeed you might be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to take just a moment, and I'd like you to think about how you would answer this question. If you knew that one request that you made of God would be granted, what would your heart yearn for, and what would you actually request of God? If you knew that the one request you made, you were assured by God that he would grant that request, what would you ask for? Take a moment. Think about it. Maybe write a little bit at the top of your bulletin as to what it is that you would ask God for. Some of us know that that occurred one time in Scripture when Solomon was told he could request whatever he wanted, and you know what his request was for wisdom. But unfortunately, he didn't follow that wisdom too well in his life. But it's interesting to add, to think of the larger issue of what does your heart yearn for? What is your heart longing for? What desire do you desire? What desire do you have for God to do something or to give you something? And what does God hear you requesting of Him when He does hear you pray? Well, these are the kinds of things that we are going to consider this morning as we look into the Word of God. Matthew chapter 20 is where we are, again, finding our thoughts this morning focused on the text here. We're going to ponder this text because it involves a situation where people were making known their request to Jesus. It's interesting that the request that was made known was not just a spontaneous solicitation. They didn't just all of a sudden come up with a, oh yeah, I want to ask you this. There's a lot of thought, and there's a lot of planning, there's a lot of scheming, and there's a lot of, of uh, premeditative uh, a strategy going on here when they make this request. There's three people involved in the request, and they saw it as an opportunity to sort of seize a moment and to get Jesus' ear and to make sure that they got their request in so that they could make sure that they got themselves advanced further to where they wanted to go so that their own self-focused agenda might be fulfilled. Let's listen to this text now. Uh, I wish we had time to read where we... Well, let's start with verse 17. We're actually going to look at verses 20 
to 24, but I'd like to back up and just read 17 uh, to 24. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way, he asked them, I'm sorry, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him up to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we're able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten, that is the ten disciples, became indignant of the two brothers. Now one of my first reactions in reading this text as I have uh, numerous times this week, but the first time I read it through as I prepared my thoughts earlier in the week was this. That James and John and their mother, they had a lot of chutzpah. I mean, give me a break. If you read the flow of the text, beginning in verses 17, 18, and 19, and you read what was said there, and Jesus talking about the fact that he is going to die, And not just any kind of death. He's going by way of a scourging and of a mocking type of treatment and then be crucified at the hands of the Gentiles. He's made that statement. Of course, he's already said something about crown someday in chapter 19, verse 28. He did say, yes, you the apostles, you've given up everything and someday there will be rewards. He did allude to that, but he's just finished talking about suffering a death by crucifixion and then followed by resurrection. And then we come to this request immediately following the third time that he has now predicted about rejection, suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection. I'm trying to think of an analogy that would sort of help us understand how inappropriate that was at that moment. And the thing that came to mind was suppose you had a situation where a friend of yours had just lost their spouse after a number of years of marriage spouse have been suffering with cancer for a long period of time, a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache. In the midst of all that, added on top of that, news has come that the house that this couple has lived in is now going to be foreclosed. So he's going to lose his house. He's just lost his wife. And imagine you as a friend coming to the door and in your conversation you say, and by the way, when you get rid of the, when you're having to move out of the house, can I have the nice antique table that was your wife's? Where, where are you, man? What are you thinking? Such a disconnect here. I wish I had the sound of a scratching record, you know, that comes between uh, 19 to 20. I guess when you get the illustrated audio Bible, that's what you'd have. You have sort of this awful sound between 19 and 20. 
That's the kind of reaction we ought to probably feel as we work through the text. Because Jesus is seeking to impress upon His disciples the true nature of His kingdom. They have got in their minds crowns and glory. And oh, it's going to be nice when Jesus sets things up the way we want them to be and we'll finally have our way and we'll be insiders. And Jesus is saying, listen, first there's coming suffering. Then there's coming glory. Rather than striving for glory, Jesus is calling them as His disciples. In Matthew 16, you recall, He's already tried to lay the groundwork and remind them, you must humble yourselves and you must follow Me. And following Me means that there's a great cost. There's a lot of suffering involved in following Jesus. And Jesus now is teaching, again, this hard-to-learn lesson with people whose minds now are still very much caught up in thinking in a worldly way and trying to follow Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Jesus requires us to think differently, to have different values, and to really assess what it is we really are desiring and longing for, what our ambitions are. And so I think what we come now is to this text in verses 20 to 28 is a section that I only took half of it today because he wants to teach the hard-to-learn lesson of contrasting the world's approach to greatness, which is what they are sort of inclined to, to think about. Greatness in terms of what works to advance me and my agenda. And he's going to contrast that with the kingdom's approach to greatness, which is helping other people achieve what God wants to see done in their life by serving them. So in this first section, verses 20 and 24, let's consider three insights regarding this issue of what's demonstrated before us People who are caught up in self-seeking ambition. They really want something, and what they want is to advance themselves. And it's pretty clear. The first point we want to look at this morning and consider is that self-seeking ambition is always revealed in our actions and in our words. Like so many people who adopt the world's values, this trio sought to advance themselves by utilizing a number of strategies. It's very clever the way this thing all unfolded. Uh, they're trying to gain advantage over everybody else. And so in order to do that, they have now followed, I think, a, a very interesting approach with some strategy. Look at this, verse 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons and making a request of him. Now, we don't have time, but if you were to compare this account in this gospel of Matthew with the other gospels of Mark and Luke, you'll notice that we learn that those who approach Jesus, the mother of Zebedee, the two sons, James and John, they are relatives of Jesus. You need to know that. That changes the text dramatically as to what's happening here. What we have is another name for, or giving a name now, of this mother of the sons of Zebedee. Her mother, the mother's name is Salome. Salome, she is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would make her, put it together now, that makes her the aunt of Jesus. And the two sons of hers, James and John, approaching Jesus, made them, what relationship to Jesus? Their cousins, first cousins. Oh, this changes the situation. Now, what we have here is we have People approaching Jesus on this inner core of his disciples, and they're doing it in order to use their family connections to what? 
gain advantage for themselves. Very interesting dynamic here. The thought, they thought that since that they were members of the same family, they could somehow secure from their relative the two best seats of honor available in the kingdom. Because, hey, we're related. We're family. Come on, man, give me the right, give me the left-hand position. You know, this makes sense. You know, we are related, right, Jesus? There's like a hidden uh, agenda here that's not so hidden. There's a, there's a sense of expectation. Now, what they're doing is they're practicing what is so common in their day, in the political realm and even in the religious realm. People who are, who are your relative, you give them a little inside help, right? You bring them into what you're doing, and they get the benefit of that. They get the extra uh, opportunities to advance because they're related to you. Nepotism. Of course, we all see it, don't we? So what happens in this text is that Jesus is being approached now with people who have a brash, self-advancing request. And they happen to be his aunt and two cousins. As you read the text closely, we also learn that James and John were the ones who likely got their mother involved in the scheme, although I'm not sure I can defend that entirely, but I think that Jesus ultimately is dealing with just the two boys. He sort of dismisses Salome, doesn't really address her, because from here on in the text, he speaks in plural. He speaks plural as as to the two there, at least two, beyond just the woman. And if you read the other Gospels, you realize they are the ones who are also making the request. So it's interesting that as they make the request... The three have conspired together to gain themselves the privilege, either directly or indirectly, by using their family hooks. You know what a hook is? Hook is your opportunity to get a hold of somebody in the higher ranks and pull you up so that you can get that greater position of privilege and honor. As I've thought about the text and about this technique and scheme and strategy that they've adopted, I began to ask myself, I wonder how many times or when was the last time that I or when was the last time you sought to use your connections and the network of people around you, the influence that you have in your world to benefit somebody other than yourself? When was the last time you thought, well, I've got a connection here. I'd like to see this person reach that point and advance themselves beyond even where I've gotten to. The answer is for most of us, can't remember when doesn't happen very often but it does happen quite often that many of us have become highly skilled at using our family our business even our church connections to somehow advance ourselves and to gain advantages over other people even if for no other reason to improve our reputation so that people will think that we're better than we really are and clearly this is what was happening when jesus was being asked by his cousins through their mother jesus's aunt for positions of greatest honor and prestige. Look at the second strategy that we find in the text here. This party of three utilized in their self-seeking ambition, they came at it in a very interesting way because they requested of Jesus a blank check agreement. You say, well, where is that in the text? Well, you need to back over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 35, gives us a little further details that are not included in Matthew's 
version of events. doesn't mean it didn't happen. Matthew just chose not to focus on that. But it's interesting because what we have here is Mark recording that James and John came up to Jesus, Mark 10, 35, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Don't you love that? <laughs> I just think this is great. It's like, what a strategy. They come up and they say, okay, look, Jesus, we're going to solicit from you a blanket agreement that whatever we ask, we want you to go ahead and say in advance the answer is yes. Sounds like some strategy kids may have used. You know, you heard this one before? Hey, Mom and Dad, would you let me, uh, you, would you agree to this before you hear what it is? And, of course, any sane parent's going to say, no way. What do, you, what do you want? But here they come to Jesus with this, trying to camouflage what they're really about because they don't want their self-focused agenda to appear as self-focused as it really is. So rather than revealing their selfish goals, they try to make Jesus agree to some vague, indefinite, blanket request. And once he had agreed to that general request, then Jesus, they thought at that time, would be obligated, obligated to go ahead and give them whatever they asked for. As I've thought about that, I've had to ask myself some difficult questions. Is it true that you, like I, oftentimes that we catch ourselves bargaining with God? That you sort of come to God and you say, well, I'm in this terrible problem and this mess, and so in order to deal with this mess, uh, I say, okay, God, if you're going to get me out of this problem, if you will get me out of this problem, I will agree to give you whatever you want. I'll do whatever you're telling me to do. I'll try to deal with that issue in my life I've had a hard time surrendering to, and I'll finally give up such and such, or I've been putting this off, and I'll finally deal with this in my life. Let's make a deal, God. I'm sure all of us would have to admit that there have been rather clever ways that we have utilized to maybe disguise our self-driven agenda. That one way we try to do this is that we tend to advance ourselves oftentimes by highlighting or drawing attention to or magnifying other people's faults. You ever done that little strategy? You focus on somebody else's error in judgment in order to make you feel better about yourself. You say, well, at least I've never done that, or at least I don't talk like that, or at least I have never done that kind of stupid thing. And we, we in some ways, focus and shift attention away from ourselves in our attempt to try to help ourselves advance in our sense of, I feel good about how much better I am than other people. But God sees through all of this self-seeking ambition. He knows that we're trying to be our own God. He knows that we're trying to advance ourselves by gaining advantage over other people. And that's the point, my friend, here, is that Christ is telling them, don't you realize you need what I am going to accomplish for you? I'm going to the cross to deal with the fact that you need a radical change in your heart. I need a radical change in my heart. Jesus knew that his disciples needed radical heart transformation. And that the only way that would be possible was through pride destroying crucifixion on the cross. Because the tendency is that all of us have our own self-focused agenda. We always are trying to promote ourselves at the advantage of other people because we really are oriented toward ourselves. And Jesus, thank, thank Jesus, 
And he did go to the cross. He didn't just give up on these disciples. He didn't just finally say, you people are so brash and so self-focused and just give them a lashing and say, forget you. He continued dealing with them, trying to instruct them, trying to help them see, finally saying, I'll show you by the giving of my life what the kingdom is all about. The kingdom is glorifying God and even calling ourselves into suffering in order to magnify God and to help serve other people in accomplishing God's goals. It's God's reign, God's agenda, God's kingdom, God's purposes. That's really what it's all about. What a great reminder, isn't it? There's another third strategy here in the text that James, John, and their mother is that they, I believe, approached Jesus with this self-focused ambition that led them to be, overall, rather self-confident. Their motivation at this point was, we can handle this. We got this, man. We can do this. Jesus tried to help them understand the implications of the suffering first concept. You know, if you're really going to be serious about the glory that's to come, you've got to deal with the suffering first. And their, their answer to him essentially was, hey, no problem. No problem. We are able. Maybe you're like a young adult <clears throat> that I've known earlier in life who didn't want to deal with his clunky car anymore. He's tired of the rusty car. He's tired of the old car that has dinks all over it and you know, makes weird sounds when it drives down the road. It's paid for, runs, but don't like that anymore. So all of a sudden, the young adult says to himself, listen, Mom, Dad, I think about getting this new car. So I'd just like to ask you to co-sign for me. I don't want to wait any longer. I don't want to have to go through the long process of you know, saving up money, being responsible, going through all the delay of of waiting, 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 just co-sign alone so I can have the car, a nice, shiny new car. Rather than sacrificing, rather than saving up for what we want, we try to sidestep suffering, which would involve what? Putting up with difficult things in the meantime. Others of us who have entered into the realm and into the um, sanctity of the marriage, we have done so by making vows and we have vowed to love our spouse for better for worse for rich or poorer in sickness and in health until death do us part but what happens when we don't get what we want what happens when we're called to suffer and realize that our agenda our self-focused agenda to get things the way we want them is not being fulfilled what then for many people, if our agenda is to get what we want, to advance our own self-focused plans and purposes, our vows at that moment work against us. <laughs> and so at that point, our vows add difficulty to our lives. And this is why so many people can find so many reasons in their minds that make a lot of sense to them, because they've now concluded that these vows no longer apply to me. Somehow, I no longer love this person. So what? <laughs> because what's changed here? The vow's still in place. What's changed is your, your agenda, your self-focused agenda, has now caused you to totally radically shift. Your strategy is now to find any reason you can to escape those vows. Many of us are quick to make promises without thinking through the implications of those promises. 
and to think through what's going to be required of me as I move forward in making this particular commitment. Look at verse 22. We're able. We're able. They thought they could easily handle any and all forms of suffering primarily because they assumed what? They assumed there would be very little, if any, suffering. At that moment, I don't think they knew what they were promising. Our actions and our words reveal our self-seeking ambition. It's interesting to think, what did Jesus' words and action reveal about him? As here he is predicting the laying down of his life for such self-absorbed sinners like James and John. My friend, what a beautiful insight that is to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. His love for sinners like you and me. His words and actions reveal the fact that he is about his father's business. And that his father calls him to suffer, he yields himself. He says, not my will, but yours be done. What a vivid contrast between Jesus and his disciples and what he calls us toward by his grace. And the only thing that will ever make us move in that direction, my friend, is the grace of Jesus Christ. It is the cross of Christ that now helps us realize it's not appropriate to live for myself any longer if Christ has died for me and has called me to live for him. The second point in the text here as we look at this ugly scenario of self-seeking ambition. Notice that this kind of ambition results in a distorted perception of reality. Rather than sternly rebuking his disciples, notice how Jesus responded to them to help them see the real issues that they were facing as he committed as committed followers. He wants them to see what's going on. And by the way, I've said it again a number of times, I'll say it again. Pride always has a blinding effect upon us. It hinders our ability to perceive accurately what's real. And here in this text, I'm convinced there is some blinding going on here because the hearts of these disciples became consumed with their own self-centered agenda. Just like our hearts become consumed with our own self-centered agenda, we want to be our own master And we fail to notice how distorted our thinking and our expectations become. We see ourselves as better than other people. We tend to overlook that we have a decreased awareness of of, of our own blessings. In other words, we stop being thankful for the things that really are tremendous blessings. Those become minimized. And now we become aware of things we really want and long for we don't have. And we tend to expect other people to serve us and satisfy our wants. And so we'll do anything or say anything or ask anything in order to advance ourselves. And we minimize our own sins, we minimize our shortcomings, have no trouble seeing the faults and seeing the failings of other people. Now with pride-filled aspirations of glory and positions of privilege occupying their hearts, here are James and John, they thought, here's our strategy. We'll secure from Jesus an assurance of the special privileges What a genius move, they must have thought. This is just pure genius. And look what Jesus says in verse 22. You don't know what you're asking for. That'll knock you down a notch or two. You do not know what you're asking for. Now you say, they they knew what they wanted. 
They knew what they were asking for. And Jesus is saying, you don't realize. If you're asking for glory, then you better be prepared for suffering. Because suffering is the first steps toward glory. Jesus insisted they're asking for the wrong things. To reign in glory means they've got to suffer first. And they said, okay, Jesus says, you want what is this glory? Then you've got to drink the cup first. Drink the cup of suffering. Drink the cup of disaster, Jeremiah 25. The, the cup of calamity, when things are not, when everything falls apart. Requesting to reign with Jesus was requesting to suffer with him. And Jesus assured them that he would, they would drink from his cup of suffering, but they didn't know at that moment what that really meant. You know how it all played out? The James here in this text is the James in Acts chapter 12 that has his head chopped off by Herod. He loses life as the first apostolic martyr of the early church. The same thing did not happen in scenario to John. But John, we realize, in Revelation chapter 1, it is John who lives to a lengthy age some have estimated he lived to be about 90 years of age and he was in on the island of patmos exiled there held off on this place for the longest time and his days ended that way for the cause of christ having been exiled there uh, trying to probably avoid uh, probably the church had him put there to avoid those situations both had difficulties they had to face as followers of christ both had different final scenarios as they unfolded but what's the point? The point was, oftentimes, they were asking for the wrong thing. Self-focused hearts ask for the wrong things. Think about this for a minute. We find it easy to ask God to change our spouse, change our parents, change my kids, change my boss, change my, my in-laws, change my neighbor, change my co-worker, God, Rather than what? Starting first and say, Lord, would you change that face I look at in the mirror every day? Start with me is the first request of somebody who has an agenda that says, I want God's agenda to happen. My agenda is what? God, fix all the mess out there so my life works easy. We often assume it's God's will to relieve us of struggle and affliction when in reality, it's the hardship that we are facing is God's scalpel that He's using to fashion us into the person He wants us to be. James 4 is quite interesting, verses 6 and 7. He puts reality into focus for people who are caught up in their own self-seeking ambition. What does James 4, 6 say? This will shock you back into reality. God is opposed to the proud. So that means if I am moving with an agenda that's primarily oriented toward myself and advancing myself, making my life work the way I want it to work in order that I may be comfortable and have power and control over other people and whatever it is, God's opposed to me. He's opposed to that agenda. But notice what it says. God, however, gives grace to the humble. What does he say? Submit, therefore, to God. One of the key responses we should make in looking at this exhibit of people who are trying to find their self-centered agenda accomplished is to rather than yearn to be king, 
rather than having our kingdom come, rather than saying, Lord, my agenda is to be comfortable. I just want to be safe. I just want to have a trouble-free life. I just want to be in control of my life and the control of other people around me. And I just want the things to go my way. We need to surrender that and say, Lord, I'm going to lay that at your feet today. And I want you to make your agenda to be my agenda. And I'm just going to sort of let this go and release it. That's hard to do. All it takes is being stuck in traffic, having a headache, and having your boss get in your face and tell you that you didn't do a very good job this last month or whatever it is. And next thing you know, what you're going to pick that old agenda right back up. Notice that humbling ourselves means that we have to submit to God's plan and strive to give Him glory. James chapter 4, verse 3 reminds us that one of the reasons we don't receive what we ask for in prayer is because why? Our motives. Our motives are driven by self-focused hearts. Look at this verse, James 4, 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Rather than asking God to make our lives easier, we would be wise to heed the advice of a pastor I read several years ago, two generations ago. He said this, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be a stronger person. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for power equal to your tasks. What, a, what an amazing turnaround that is in terms of looking at life much differently a whole new set of eyes to see differently the reality of what our lives are all about real quickly here i'll just add an illustration of nehemiah in chapter 9 of that great book where nehemiah runs into so many problems and challenges and heartaches and difficulties because again the goal is to rebuild the walls of a broken down jerusalem and he faces these threats and intimidation by this guy named sanballat And what does Nehemiah, how does he respond to that? Does he say to God, God, bring down lightning on this guy's head. Destroy him. Make all of his efforts go away and disappear. Nehemiah 9 verse 6 says this, O God, strengthen my hands. Help me to deal with the situation that I must deal with and help me to respond appropriately in light of this particular opposition we're facing. What a great way to say, I need help, Lord. I need help to accomplish your purposes in this situation. Our third point of insight here regarding self-seeking ambition is to notice that those who are caught up with this kind of self-seeking ambition, they find that the source, it is really the source of discord and conflict. I couldn't stop the text here at verse 23. I had to go to verse 24. Because you'll notice in verse 24, it may have been, I'm not sure, but the request as they're walking Jerusalem, they may have sort of arranged themselves so that Jesus is sort of walking out in front of them. They may have sort of walked up and caught up with him. And so here's the mother of, of uh, you know, Salome and James and John. And they're talking to him. And they're, at, at that point, it was a beginning to be a private conversation. But you know what happens when the private conversation ends up being overheard by one or two. Next thing you know, everybody knows. And guess what? Here come the sparks flying. Verse 24. Upon hearing this, what is this? 
conversation that Jesus is having them as he tries to correct them and tries to understand what in the world you're asking for, you don't know what you're asking for, the ten disciples became indignant at the two brothers. Notice they're not indignant with the mother. The mother sort of fades into irrelevance here. It's the two brothers, James and John, fellow disciples. The word there translated indignant literally means much grief. And so here they are responding to what they understand to be. <clears throat> They've learned that the ten disciples are highly upset. And the first question that comes to my mind is, what are they so upset about? Are you with me now? What are they upset about? You're going to find we have what? Everybody's got a common denominator here. here. They're upset because they perceive that the two, James and John, the relatives, have got the inside track. They're trying to get the two best positions. There only is one on the right. There's only one on the left. They're trying to get those two seats. And what does that mean for the rest of the ten? It means they're upset because they wanted those two positions. See? So they're all on the same page. They've got the same self-focused agenda as James and John. They're all in this thing together. Just like what? You and I, we're all in this thing together. We're all in the, walking on the same earth here. It's a sad commentary that they have their own self-seeking agenda, just like James and John. Now, notice that the common outward evidence of self-seeking ambition. You say, how do I know when self-seeking ambition is operating in my life or the lives of people around me? Here's this. Is there conflict and is there resentment going on and quarreling going on? That's one of the indicators that the agenda is being pursued. Look at James 4, verses 1 and 2. James 4 is an excellent uh, commentary on this particular scenario in the Gospels. James 4, 1 and 2. I should have told you to put a piece of paper in there. We'd be coming back to that again and again. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What's the real root issue here? What's the real source of this problem? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You desire and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Be very clear, my friends. The reason that you may have had a recent argument about your finances with your spouse or with your people in your home the reason you may have just had an argument about someone who was coming late for something and made you late for something, or somebody who promised they'd do something and they haven't done it and you've been arguing about it again now, the reason why you're arguing, my friends, is not the issue itself that you argued about. It is the fact that both people involved have underlying desires and, and things that they're longing for that leads them now to get into a conflictual situation. A self-focused agenda will, will, will give evidence of itself in the context of arguing and quarreling and fighting. It is the cravings which underlie conflict. That's worthy of writing down. Should have been in your notes. Cravings underlie conflict. So you have to ask yourself, when there was an argument about the finances, what was the real issue that you were craving? What do you really want? You want a hassle-free life? Do you want a life that people can give you uh, 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 affection? 
Do you want a life in which you have the attention from other people? Whatever it is. You want respect? You want control? Whatever it is your desire that really you're longing for, that's the issue that's now leading to the outward conflict of evidencing self in your relationship. So we fight, we argue, we go to battle with each other because we don't get what we really want. And the first step to resolving this conflict, my friend, and hear me out now real quickly. We don't have time to go into this too long. The first step to resolving this horizontal conflict is we got to first of all realize we got conflict on a vertical plane. It's because our agenda is walking at odds against, is working at odds against God's agenda and that we are caught up in our own way of accomplishing things going against God and His ways, and we first of all need to humble ourselves and say, God, I've got to confess my sin to you. I've got to admit that what I've got going on here is my desires are not your desires for me, and I'm way off track. I've got to admit that, be honest. I've got to humble myself, confess my sin. And then in, in such confessing, which means say the same thing as God, agree with Him, then say, and thank you, God, there's forgiveness for people like me who are so caught up in myself. And go right to the cross. Because that's the only ground we have of knowing we can be fully forgiven is Christ dying on the cross. It is Christ who did not give in to his own self-focus, but surrendered himself, offering himself as an appeasing offering to God to satisfy the wrath of God that we might, what, be reconciled to God and be put on good terms with God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can have hope. Let me just show you one last final point here I want to make. 2 Corinthians 5.15 is my last point. 2 Corinthians 5.15. If I understand the cross as the primary means by which God can humble me to reveal my self-focused heart and to help turn me away from it and turn to realize I've got to yield myself to God, serve Him in His agenda, which means serving other people around me, it's got to be this concept that ties it together. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christ died for all. For all of us, the likes of people like us. And that, so what? So that they who live should no longer live for themselves. Do you see what that means? So they do not be caught up in their own agenda, self-focused agenda. But for Him, it is Christ's agenda to live for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. So I'll go back to my original question. If you knew for sure that God could give you what you request of Him, one request, what are you going to ask for? What would you ask for? Perhaps one request would be, Lord, in light of the cross, humble me. Teach me humility. Teach me to surrender my self-focused agenda to your agenda and to follow you, live for you, not for myself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as we've had our hearts revealed here today, it's not a very beautiful sight at all. There's so much ugliness when we're exposed to who we really are. It just oftentimes, Lord, helps us to be aware of what you saw in us when you went to that cross. You saw the ugliness of our sin. It highly offended you. We thank you that you provided the cross because you loved us so much. 
because your love was willing to lay your life down, Lord Jesus, for us. Help us not to be caught up living for ourselves. Lord, I pray that the cross of Christ would cause us to have a change, a change that we're not doing what comes naturally, but that we might supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, surrender our agenda to the advancement of ourselves over other people, to be your agenda, where we give our lives to you and want what you want, adopting your strategy and your plans and your purposes, and that our desires might change, Lord. Our great delight would be to honor you. We need your help. Help us, Lord, to never forget the cross, and that we might all walk humbly before you in light of that. We pray in Christ's name. God. Change it. We don't want to be like we always have been. We want to see change. We want to see God making us what we naturally would never do. Let's make this our prayer. to remind you that uh, we'll have a brief meeting uh, following our time of worship here this morning. But uh, first of all, we'd like to ask you after I close in prayer to go and retrieve your children. Very important that they be picked up immediately, not waiting around for a long time, so that you may come back and join us with your children. It'll be a very brief meeting, uh, so we encourage you to stay part, stay afterwards and be a part of that. Let's pray. Lord, apart from the power of the cross... We wouldn't have much hope for changing, but we thank you, Lord, that we're not praying in vain here. We really do want you to change us, Lord. We thank you that through the cross of Christ, 
through the power of the resurrection, there is hope for change with sinners like us. And now unto you who are, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen.